Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. You asked, we delivered, we have returned. This is the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Castrol in 2024. Great to have you with me. I'm Aaron Noonan. Great to have with me, Will Dale. Hello, Will Dale. How you going? I'm super. I am good to go. I am caffeinated. I am carbonated. And I'm lubricated with Castrol, ready to go for another year on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. Uh, Did you have a nice break? I did have a nice break. What did you do? Uh, Well, I listened to last week's episode with David Hassel where he talked about that wonderful Alan Moffat book. Uh, If you've got that book about the Boss Mustang, don't try to read it in bed because if you fall asleep, of course, you're not going to fall asleep because it's a great book, it's going to cause you serious facial damage because it's a big, heavy book. It's going to hurt, yeah. yeah. Nasty, nasty. Did you go anywhere exciting? I uh, went down to Tassie for a bit, did some stuff around the house. Did you drive around the target Tassie stages or visit uh, I did not. Part? No, no, no. Didn't oh, go to that part of Tassie. Next time. Next, Next time. time. Fair play. Fair play. Um, we've got so much to go into this year. We've had a nice break in terms of uh, Christmas, New Year's, summer. Weird summer here in our part of the world here in Melbourne, by the way. <laughs> it's It's been a very, very strange one. A couple of things we'll run through before we get into this episode. Uh, a big welcome to Brad Jones Racing. They have joined us in the Motorsport Podcast Network with the BJR Rundown, Chris Westwood and Macaulay Jones, who present that pod. They started it last year up in Albury, and they've now joined the Motorsport Podcast Network. First step of the year from those guys is out. You can get it wherever you get your pods, and it's part of the Motorsport News offering of podcasts this year. So that's cool. Do you reckon we can manage to convince Bradley to tell some Uncle Bradley stories on that pod. I'm sure not too much arm twisting would would be required because he's got some good stories. He's got some cracking stories. He's got a long, long list of stories. So great to have BJR with us on the Motorsport Podcast Network. You'll hear and see those episodes pop up over the course uh, of the year. Motorsport News Podcast is back. Yourself, Steph Bartholomew, award-winning stuff with you boys, ready to rumble for another 2024. And, of course, the V8 Sleuth Podcast this year is powered by Castro, long-time partner of ours. They're backing the Sleuth pod this year, plus a bunch of other cool stuff in our V8 Sleuth website world and socials. So really looking forward to the year. And we thought we'd kick off in a bit of Sleuth style. We're driving forward into a new year, but I'm big on if you want to know where you're going, you've got to know where you've been. And throughout the course of this year, we're going to take a look back at the decades that led us to 2024. So on this pod, we are delving into a year that has got so much to talk about, 1994. It's 30 years ago this year. That's shocking, isn't it? It's scary. It was my first year at high school. That's how scary it is, and that dates me slightly now. Anyone who (laughs) doesn't know how old I am now knows how old I am. But when I sat here and I jotted a list and we had a bunch of sleuth readers on our Facebook page send in their memories of the things that spring into their mind, when we say 1994 in motorsport, there's probably one overwhelming element here that has worldwide um, significance and will be marked on May the 1st again this year. I can't see that there's a bigger story from 1994 or perhaps in world motorsport history. Oh, absolutely. I mean, ultimately, 1994 was the year we all sort of realised motorsport was dangerous again, and the headline of that was the deaths of Ed and Senna, on race day at the San Marino Grand Prix, Formula One Grand Prix, and the death the day prior to that of Roland Ratzenberger in qualifying in the Simtech. It was just, um, I don't think a death had occurred at a Formula One race meeting since 82. Since 82, since yeah, Ricardo Pelletti in Montreal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it just, it was shocking. I remember watching that at home. Of course, Senna was my favourite driver as a kid, and just the disbelief waking up the next morning. Of um of that news, I'm sure that a lot of our listeners will be um, taken back to Channel 9's broadcast of Formula One at the time. Mm. Daryl Eastlake, Alan Jones, Sunday night. Very different how it is now because no social media amplifying what was going on. And the other thing too was it was not live. 
In Australia, no. we didn't get live Formula One. I think a lot of people thought it was, but it was shown a little later than it actually unfolded. But, of course, before the days of mobile phones and socials and news spreading around the world quite as quickly. But I, I used to not sit up and watch Grand Prix. I'd do the whole maybe watch the start, tape record it and yeah. watch it in the morning. I hadn't done that that night. And I vividly remember waking up to the 7 o'clock radio news and I don't know why, but I just knew, I just knew what they were about to tell me. I've never felt that before in my life or since, but as they said, Ayrton Senna has been killed in the San Marino Grand Prix. Yeah. I just knew, and I don't know why, and I don't know how, maybe because the Ratzenberger thing of the previous day was quite confronting, particularly yeah. when you're a younger guy. Oh, absolutely. Uh, or, or girl, um, you know. We hadn't really experienced a high-profile motorsport death for a long time, no. and and what it led to was was like it was massive. It, it was massive world news. Oh, absolutely! And what it led to in within Formula One, not so beyond the outpouring of grief. I mean, Senna was an icon in Brazil. No doubt, if you're listening to this, you've probably seen the documentary that came out. Not almost a while ago now. Yeah, yeah. Um, the amount of mourning that occurred in Brazil over his passing, but the impact it had on Formula One and the rapid changes that were brought in to make cars safer, make circuits safer. Um, it's incredible how fast the sport can move when it really wants to. It's a great point. You've beaten me to it. When that happened, and look, at the end of the day. He was killed by the piece of suspension that got him in the helmet. Yeah. The actual crash, albeit, was very spectacular and there's parts flying everywhere. And, and there'd been several accidents at Tamburello oh, in yeah. prior years. That was probably the least spectacular of them. When you think of Gerhard yeah. Berger's crash in the Ferrari when it caught fire in 1989, Nelson Ricardo Patrese had had another big one in the Williams a couple of years ago. I think I saw so footage of that on social recently. Um, and then there's that story of Senna and Berger when they were teammates at McLaren at a test session at Imola going out to see what could be done about increasing runoff area. But you couldn't. And they saw, oh, there's a river behind mm -hmm. there. Well, yeah. that's the end of that. Yeah, exactly. And and there were those changes to the cars, the circuits even. I mean, the chicane that got put in at Catalunya at Spa, mm. they took out Eau Rouge. Like, it yeah. was became a slow chicane. Um and it Silverstone they changed, yeah, made they, all those changes but, with as well. Yeah, it was one of those, and I know we're sort of more so a, an Australian V8 type podcast, but you can't not put this at the start of no. to talking about 1994. It is a Formula One season that is a doco just waiting to be made. I mean, the Senna stuff, all of the Imola stuff was massive, but then all of the elements that flowed out of it, all the, the allegations of Benetton and the traction control – Damon Hill's championship battle to kind of do what his dad did and like mm. build a team like his dad did when Jim Clark died yeah. and challenge for the world championship. And you had Nigel Mansell pop back up yeah. and you had um, all these different storylines and elements throughout the course of the year that there was, there was something going on in Formula One all the time that year. And mm. even if the Senna tragedy and the Imola tragedy hadn't occurred, Yes, those safety changes and all those things would not have occurred, but there was so much other stuff going on that it still would have been one season of amazing things. It just was amazing for something that no one could have ever comprehended happening. Well, back when I was at Fox, I actually did a content piece um, with basically a rundown of almost each day of things that happened in F1 across 1994. And you think back to the very start of the season, Benetton was without its second driver. JJ oh. Leto was meant to be the second driver that year, not Max Verstappen, but he basically- Jos Verstappen. Sorry, Jos Verstappen, <laughs> almost. Um, except he fractured his neck in a testing accident at Silverstone and he was eventually rushed back and back into the car, was on, on the grid at San Marino, stalled, I think. Well, he that was, was the in the big yeah. start line crash. In the start line crash, yeah. As well, so. um, and continued to race, but was struggling with feeling in his hands and was eventually replaced again by Jos Verstappen later in the year. Uh, Jean Lacy fractured um, fractured a couple of vertebrae in a testing crash. That's why Nicola Larini was driving. 
That was why yeah. Marini was driving. Barrick- Rubens Barrichello was injured on the Friday at San Marino with that yeah. awful crash at Variantabassa. Carl Venlinger at, Mo- oh, at Monaco, Monaco a yeah. few weeks later. Uh, Andrea Montemini breaking both his feet in a Simtech at the Spanish Grand Prix. Yeah. Uh, Pedro Lamy's horrible oh, testing Silver- crash at Silverstone yeah, where he ended, ended up, up in the spectator it- tunnel upside yeah, down and yeah, on fire. Yeah. Um, all and, these and then, drives and then, there's, and then there's all the stuff. Remember that Schumacher gets thrown out of with the British Grand Prix for, for the passing, skid plate. Oh, he passed on the passing formation on lap. the formation lap twice, it, and yeah. then ignored the black flag. It, yeah, and then of course we haven't even talked about the Adelaide finale yet. Oh God! Yeah. So I mean, we could. There's a whole 1994 book pod documentary just waiting to be done. But I, I think there was a theme in this year of '94, and I, I don't mean to be to be morbid, but there, we were touched locally and internationally by. Accidents that caused fatalities at mm. racetracks, and the year started in America with Neil Bonnet, and I, m- yeah. I mention him because he won that first NASCAR race at the Calder Park Thunderdome mm. in '88. So he's forever in the history books of Australian and a unique chapter of American motorsport, where he'd taken a drive with Dale or as Dale Earnhardt's teammate at Richard Childress. Yeah, he well because he hurt himself quite badly. Neil got hurt quite a few times across his career. And Darlington in 1990, when he was driving for the Wood Brothers, was quite bad, um, suffered serious head injuries, came back not to race, but came back um, as a commentator. Had He had a lot of media roles as well, in addition to the driving, um, and did a lot of testing for Richard Childress and for Earnhardt, um, as Dale wasn't exactly big on testing by that part <laughs> of his me. career. Shock me. Um, so, he, he was a big contributor to Earnhardt's 93 championship and- as part of that, he raced. To, he got to make his Cup Series comeback at Talladega, where he had this massive flip through the trioval, and also raced at the last race of the season at Atlanta to help Dale get enough points to secure the title. Um, but he decided to make a full time comeback with a, with I think James Finch Racing, um, and this is a period where there were the big tire wars still in NASCAR. Yeah. They had Goodyear, the incumbent, and Hoosier had come back via the Bush Series. And Bonnet was aligned with Hoosier tyres and was quite fast in testing and unfortunately had a horrifying accident during one of the practice lead-up sessions that um, unfortunately took his life. And a similar accident also claimed the life of uh, rookie driver Rodney Orr mm. a couple of however, a couple of days later or yeah. a couple of days before. Yeah, yeah. And, and locally later in the year, obviously, the Don Watson accident in practice at Bathurst mm. down at the chase at Conrod Strait when a, there was a brake explosion on the front of that car and he went head on. Thankfully, that earth bank is, is now long gone. long gone. But sadly, um, it claimed his life, a really popular privateer from Bacchus Marsh. And you still see the, the Don Watson transport yeah. trucks driving around the country. It's great in to that see same that, livery. Yeah, same livery. Yeah. That the same race colours. car and the trucks are in the, the white with the blue splashes down the side. So, yeah, definitely um, a sport that um, was a year where we were reminded very heavily and regularly of, of what can happen. And Cannonball Run as well. Oh, yeah, and that was one thing I'd completely overlooked, the Cannonball yeah. Run that Alan Moffat was involved in um, through the Northern Territory, no speed limits, and there was, of course, some Japanese competitors in a Ferrari F40 that lost control coming into the end of a stage, and sadly there were some some officials also killed in that. So it was a really rough year for motorsport in all corners of the world. But um, one of the things I want to talk about from from 94, and, and we really did a call out during the week on socials to see mm. what, when we say 1994, what do people remember? What's the thing that sticks in their brain? A lot of people referring to the Dick Johnson, John Bow Bathurst win and the Craig Lowndes battle at the end of the race. That's oh, yes. really stuck in people's memory banks. Um Imola obviously came up quite significantly with a lot of people. Um, And I think one of the other things that popped up that a few people mentioned, not heaps, but um, was a little bit of in terms of the the V8 stuff, Brock returning to the Holden Racing Team, sticks in people's brains. That was massive news. That was broken late 93 by Motorsport News, funnily Mm. enough. that um, That's why they were called Motorsport News. They, uh, They did that stuff. By the way, too. We are putting the back catalogue of Motorsport News and e-news online for you to be able to access uh, for a small fee, but not very much at all. It'll just cover our costs to do all the digitisation, all the time and effort that's gone into it. 
we're slowly but surely populating our V8 Sleuth issue page and you'll see some of those be embedded in various stories on V8 Sleuth in upcoming weeks and months, but there's a lot of history there, which is really mm. cool over the best part of 20-plus of years. But in terms of V8s, Mark Scaife won the championship in the Winfield car, basically dominated the first three rounds and then won bugger all ever since after that. To the point where the Gibson team was accused of using traction control on that car. Yeah, they were. Back when that was the big buzzword in Formula One and IndyCar racing. Yeah. Um, I don't think that was ever- It was certainly categorically denied at the time. I don't think it was ever proven. Still is categorically denied is what I was was trying to say. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So it was the second year of the V8 formula, as it was, Commodore v. Falcon, um, VPs versus EB2s with the winglets were added for that year of, of 94. But we still had the tie war, Bridgestone, yeah. Dunlop, Yokohama, everybody uh, involved there. And it is kind of a – it's kind of the last time the cars looked boxy. Yeah, because the VR and the EF that came the following year had much nicer lines and they did look like a fairly decent step forward. So it's kind of the last old school era of V8 racing before things got a bit slicker. Yeah. In look and feel. I I love the look of those cars. They were fantastic and would always would probably pick an EB2 over an EF any day of the week, to be honest. (laughs) They did uh, prove to be successful in both body kits at various stages, particularly one car. The Bathurst winning car became the championship winner for John Bauer the the following season. I mean, there were there were there was plenty of drama. I mean, Bathurst HRT, their strut tower issue. The allegations against Gibson with their traction control. Uh, we were a year before the speed hump of Glenn Seaton, Dick uh, Johnson. Yes. A few people might have referred to that, but got their years slightly uh, mixed up in things. But this is where we went back to just V8s. Mm. So the first round of the Touring Car Championship, I think round two at Sandown, Amaru and Sandown, Steve Valerie ran his two-litre Sierra, even though that year, there was the separate two-litre championship that was formed, and we'll talk about that soon because there is another major anniversary <laughs> for us to discuss. But he ran it because you could run a two-litre car against the V8s. It was in the rules that you could do it. But after round two, that was it. He went off into two-litre land, and we never saw a two-litre car race in the championship, Australian Touring Car Championship, ever since. So this year, 1994, 30 years ago, is somewhat the end of an era. It's funny that last year was, I guess, the first year that anything other than a 5-litre V8 was used either. So, that that era lasted a long time, longer than any previous era in in Mm. the championship history. Yeah, it's a very- um, I know there's some people who deride the whole V8 and supercar era, but it has been- It went pretty well. It's a very long era, a very long era. It has outlasted plenty of other categories and and rule sets uh, in its time. One other thing that popped up that year that I think probably goes way under the radar- There'd been attempts in the previous years to get a teams association Mm. sorted and together and united for the best interests of the touring car teams. And if you go back to that 94 year at Sandown at the 500, the best 500 field that had been put together for a while because all the heavy hitters were there. All the teams that normally wouldn't go, Tony Longhurst's team was a bit hit and miss. Dick Johnson was a bit hit and miss for a few years there. Gibson Motorsport hadn't run the race for five years, which was – Quite amazing when you look back on it. If you look closely at the cars that year, they've all got Tiger stickers on them. Yeah, that little Australian flag style decal on the yeah. on the backs of yeah. Yep, Touring Car Entrance Group of Australia. So that's where the the unity was starting to come from. That got a field together. So as hey, we're all going to go to Sandown as part of all this. And then the Tiger. I mean, Tiger had been a thing leading into that, but that's mm. kind of where I reckon they they got it together. And of course, two years later they're part of a significant deal to transform the face of V8 touring car racing into V8 supercars with Tony Cocker and IMG and all the stuff that came after that. So you could almost look to 1994 as a year where there was some of those seeds that had been kind of sown. Oh, for sure. It was a big transition point because 
you look at those Sandown and Bathurst Enduros, we, we just talked about Steve Ellery making the last start for a non-five-litre car in the championship. But those two Enduros had, um, at Sandown, they had a production car class for the yeah, last time. they've done that for a few years to try to bolster the field a little bit. Mm. But um, at least in 94, you got some of the 12-hour cars, like yes. the RX-7 and the Porsche and the BMW. Yeah. Um, the six-cylinder Commodores and Falcons just <laughs> couldn't keep up with those things, let alone the Group A cars. No. And then a couple of weeks later at Bathurst, you had the two-liter class that ran as part of the 1,000 for the final uh, – within the 1,000 for the mm. final time. And of course, a few years later, they had their own race for a couple of years, the race, a race. Depends what side of the history books you're it's on. It's all with, a Bathurst 1,000. With all that. Exactly right. Exactly right. So, that segues us perfectly. To Saturday mornings in 1994. <laughs> you know where I'm going here, don't you? I do, yeah. I used to set the alarm nice and early to get up, make sure that I could manually operate the VCR, don't set the timer, because I wanted to record the Valvoline two-litre touring car show that Channel 9 or Win TV, where I lived in Ballarat, was showing that was a mixture of the Australian two-litre series and the British Touring Car Championship highlights. I think it ran every Saturday for something like 40 weeks in a row, something along those lines. The two-litre racing was, how should we say it to begin with in Australia, professional wrestling special. The the script was written and then a couple of laps to go, it was open slather. Yeah, there was definitely, um, if you- if you look at those races and think, gee, there's a lot of passing in these early stages. Gee, that gee, that Mercedes 190E of Wardy's really giving those BMWs of no, Tony no, no. Longhurst and the Paul Morris. The Big Merc, as oh, Big yes, Darrell used to Merc. refer to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe some of those passes weren't entirely on merit. Are you claiming that it was rigged? Uh, rigged is probably over overstretching it. If they'd rigged the final results, okay, maybe rigged would be a useful word, but- uh, um, Highlighted the entertainment. Nicely was played. Potential. Nicely played. So that first round at Eastern Creek, it was stayed together, stay bunched, pass one another, make it look good for Tally, then a couple laps to go, go for it. Yes. <laughs> but that all was kind of overshadowed a few rounds later at Winton, where Tony Longhurst and Paul Morris famously get together in the pair of BMWs. They lock wheels going across the line. Tony cracks the shits. He thinks he's been steered into the fence deliberately. Replay shows, of course, that, well, they've just touched and grabbed wheels and both the cars steering, go yeah. Yeah, straight into the fence. Tony swings a few through <laughs> through the window and it goes bunter. It goes viral before viral meant viral in that way. And none of it was scripted. No, no script for that one. <laughs> but I tell you what, I would not have blamed them if they had have scripted it because the publicity that it got for- that style for the two-liter racing was out of control. Oh, yeah. Expensive, expensive, but, uh, yeah, got the results. I think Tony did have to apologize. He had to do piles of media in the aftermath of it all. and But it's one of those things that it's here we are, 30 years on, and we're still, still talking, talking about, about it. it. It's still remembered. And when that bit of vision gets a run every now and then on socials and re-emerges, uh, we might have re-emerged it a couple of times over the journey, <laughs> that uh, it, gets, it gets a lot of interest. Yes, it really does. The- um it's interesting that it's also 94 was the end for Longhurst and the end for the Benson and Hedges colours in the mm. sport as well. I mean, mm. they played such a significant role from from his Bathurst win in 88 and it was also the end of his relationship with Frank Gardner. Of course, he struck out on his own, started his own uh, V8 team for 1995. And that was a year early before the tobacco sponsorship had to disappear. Um, I think the deal was up. The deal was up, yeah. Under the terms of the new legislation, you couldn't start a new one. Correct, yeah. WDHO wills that ran to the end of 94. And that I'm pretty sure that's the same year they donated the winning Sierra to the museum, yes. which is still sitting at the National Motor Racing uh, Museum. But, yeah, it was the end of an era, wasn't it? Tony Long. I mean, that team carried on as the Diet Coke BMW team yeah. with Frank Gardner. Later on, of course, Terry Morris was part of the ownership. Lyle Williamson ran it a bit later on before it um, before it finished up. But, yeah, that, that's – if you look back at the line of the Longhurst Sierra, what, 88 to 94, mm. there's a period there. Um, yeah, it, it, that's a part of history in Australian touring car racing that that little chapter kind of came to an end there. But um, 
we had a bunch of other interesting thoughts from people. I want to run through a few of these and see if these um, <laughs> it was good, register with you. It was great because that's what we love about having so many followers and so many people who love the sport and, and really get right into it. A lot of people remembering Larry Perkins sliding in the wet weather in the early yeah, stages of the Bathurst 1000 that year. That really struck a chord. Plenty of people went to the IndyCar pathway. Few people uh, remember vividly the Penske Mercedes pushrod engine that Another dominated – the yep. Indy 500 that year with Al Unser Jr. winning the race. Of course, that was the secret engine that they looked into the rule book and said, oh, yes, pushrod engine, stock blocky type thing. Yeah. Mm, maybe we could do something here. Yeah, and they sure did. They sure did. Was the quote from Roger Penske, if this, if this gets out, it's basically like cutting the end off your paycheck. <laughs> well, it didn't get out. Effect. No, it did not. No one got their paycheck cut. Uh, the other th- one of the other things that sprung into my mind was – the debut with the victory, victorious debut of Reynard in IndyCar racing here on the Gold yeah. Coast with Michael Andretti driving for Chip Ganassi, which a lot of people forget that he did. It was a one-year deal after he'd been in McLaren with Formula One. But that was the year that the light faded and it was a finish the race almost in darkness and the television coverage had had to leave. And it was one of those, this is why we have time certain finishes, boys and girls. It's true. But the win for Reynard, that carried on the success that they'd had in every category they'd won in on debut, in every category that they'd been in up to that point in terms of F3 Oh, I thought it was just the F3 pole position on debut. Was it pole or win? Because they lost- They ended that streak because Nigel beat Michael to pole position. I think it was- the, I think it's the win on debut in every category. Right. Well, that was what they were saying at the time. I haven't gone right back through to every category, but- I mean, the fact that that started the Reynard era where they became the dominant chassis- of sure. choice in, in IndyCar racing the following oh, year or two. I mean, Michael proved the car was fast and also that it was bulletproof with the way he drove it over the chicanes oh, in the most literal photo. possible sense. You, you're thinking of the photo? Yeah. The thing just launched off that back chicane. During qualifying. When it was and, a real chicane. Yeah, when it, it was, was high. That was the last year of that chicane in that configuration, in part because of how because of Michael going over the top of it because <laughs> if you got it wrong at the start of it, the only end result, well, the two end results were you're either going to fly over that chicane at high speed or you're going to end up in the fence on the other side or both. It really was a, a huge era of IndyCar racing. Mm. It was just about to hit the peak. 95 was probably just about the peak for it before the split with the, the Indy Racing League. But, yeah, Reynard played a huge part in the couple of years that unfolded, and it was 94 where they debuted in IndyCar racing. Mm. They only had a couple of cars in the field at that point, but sort of within a couple of years, they pretty much had the whole field later on. Yeah. Um, we also had that year that the Indy Racing League was announced. Yeah, That's it was announced George- that surfers weekend. Yeah, it was, yeah. wasn't it? So Tony George had said he was going to run a series of races under his own banner, and that was basically the declaration of war. Yeah. And, and you know- it decimated IndyCar racing to the point where the only winner was not CART, not the IRL, but NASCAR. That's it. I mean, NASCAR was very much on the way up at that point anyway. Um, but, uh, yeah, the Civil War in IndyCar racing certainly cleared the path for them. Mm. Uh, that was the 94 year where, uh, obviously, Penske won the championship. Alonso Jr. had moved across from the Gallus team. Um, you know, they had that three-pronged attack with he and Emerson Fittipaldi and Paul Tracy. Nigel had won the championship the year before and kind of lost all sort of real interest and dropped his bundle once the new Lola wasn't, you know, the thing to, to win. He was off back in Formula One when Bernie started throwing cash around later in the year because they needed some eyeballs to go back to to Formula One. But some of the other stuff that our, our readers have, have jumped on, um, Coca-Cola Commodores, it was the start of the Wayne Gardner oh, yes. Racing um, standalone team in, in V8s. Well, I was going to say in V8 supercars, but it wasn't at that yeah. point. Yes. Um, Andre Baird pointed out that the rat went back to back in the Touring Car World Championship or the Touring Car World Cup, I think it was, yep. in the Mondeo. That was at Donington. He'd won it at Monza uh, the previous year. Um, lots of mentions of Senna, lots about V8s, and particularly Bathurst in 94. It just goes to show you that the Bathurst thing is what – sticks in people's brains. Every time we do a call-out regarding touring car championship memories, people say Bathurst anyway, even oh, if sure. they weren't part of it back there's in a, the day. There's a thing about that Bathurst weekend that people tend to forget because it wasn't captured by TV cameras. Lowndes? Lowndes going Spin. off, spinning at McPhillamy during the race. McPhillamy? No, Sulman Park during yeah. the race. Yeah. Same yeah. place where Brock went. It's, there apparently was some amateur vision. Lowndes has told us that there yeah. was. He'd seen the tape, but the tape 
seems to have disappeared. I reckon he made it disappear, so no one thought he did it. But there is a still photo, black and white, of him facing the wrong way. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a couple of them, actually, yeah. yeah. It's one of him coming to rest with big, wide eyes at what had just mm. unfolded and then, yeah, taking back off again. It, it was the year of the launch of Lowndes. I mean, that, that moment at Bathurst really put him on the map and instantly not just put him in the eyes of motor racing fans, but he burst straight past the motorsport sphere into the general sporting conscious because there was so much coverage in the aftermath. It was such a big event. And it wasn't usual to have a kid his age in that position. No. Like it was really different. I mean, we we got so used now of having used to having drivers in their early twenties, even teens, maybe not being fighting for the Bathurst one thousand win on the last laps, but being trusted being in to the be game. in a good car. Yeah, 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 being, yeah, being in there. But it was very different in that era with a lot of owner-drivers. Australian Muscle Car Magazine is one of the most respected voices in motoring media. There's been over 140 issues and thousands of stories published in the last 22 years. From the amazing muscle car machines of the past to the present and the stars that steered and built them, AMC has something for everyone. Delve into the heritage of homegrown high performance now at musclecarmag.com.au. I had someone point out about Gary Brazier winning his first Australian title in sprint car racing. Um, Of course, Mick Doohan won his first World 500cc World Championship after all those injuries and all that drama. And then basically 94, he just started dominating from here on in 30 years ago. Well, you think that 94, there was no Wayne Rainey. He'd had his tragic accident the year before. Uh, Kevin Schwantz had lost a bit of motivation with the loss of Rainey and also got hurt, kept getting hurt a few times. He was probably Mick's closest rival that year, but I think fractured his wrist at Assen and then um, wasn't quite the same since. Took And he took the last race win of his career uh, at Donington despite breaking his hand the day before with a high side in qualifying. Very, very Kevin Schwantz. Yep. Um, sticking with motorcycle racing, another person that sort of emerged that year on the local scene- um, Kind of pertinent, sadly, with his recent passing, Anthony Gobert. Yeah. He won the. He came out and won the '94 Australian Superbike title against strong opposition, returning Matt Mladen on a Kawasaki. Um, and he was tied. I think that was his second year of full-time Superbike road racing, having come through after winning everything you could win in motocross. Um, was tied to Honda. Uh, who actually sent him for a wild card appearance in the Superbike World Championship. At Sugo. Um, and then he quit on the eve of Phillip Island to race, a, race for Kawasaki and won both races. <laughs> it's an amazing story, his story. It's, it's a sad story of, yeah. of, um, of how it's ended and, and how yeah. it all unfolded. But there were certainly some amazing performances on, on bikes and, and he was a big part of, of that era. Of course, we got Superbike Racing as part of the Touring Car Trail with the Shell Series back yeah, in the those two plus days. Four. And it's been flirted with and tried a couple of times in – you know, the 2010s and then in more recent times in Darwin, we've got to find a way to get that yeah, as a, as a more regular thing. thing. I think that's a thing that's – I think sometimes you can look back on things from the past and, and they, they, they were great for their time, but they, they just don't work today. But I think that works today and it would work for both parties really well. Oh, really, absolutely. Really and well. Like Superbike Racing Australia is probably the strongest it's been since that era. But does anyone know about it? Uh, I think that's the last part of the puzzle. Yeah, exactly. I think it wouldn't hurt. Uh, the Volvo wagon of 1994. Oh, yes. yeah. I nearly forgot. British touring cars, Jan Lammers, Ricard Rydell, uh, Tom Walkinshaw Racing with that estate, as they the call it in the UK. Uh, you say wagon over there and they look at you like you're an absolute yeah. crazy. They just yes, don't The Volvo understand. 850 shooting break, yes. Yeah, yeah. It, it had the odd good day at the office, um, just not as many as uh, as – some of the other cars, uh, Alfa Romeo, which was the the car to have in, well, in 94. Well, they changed the game in Super Touring because you remember the Alfa, like, Super Tourers didn't have any wings well, or air even, devices. They weren't even Super Tourers that year. Well, exactly, that yeah. didn't come till the next year, did it? Yeah. No. Um, and next year, they also had wings because Alfa, in, um, in its ingenuity, had sold a Silverstone version of the 155 <laughs> that had all these fiberglass bits in the boot, which, you know, if you decide to bolt them to your car- um, Made a wing. Yeah. Added a front splitter and raised the height of the rear spoiler. And all of a sudden, they were fast on the racetrack. Who mm. knew? Mm. And the rest of the field, I think BMW popped up with an aero kit during the year. Mid-year, not, not, yeah. the, not the big one that came the next year, but- Something. Yeah, something rather than nothing. And the rest of them didn't have anything. And that probably started a trend with 
two liters where it started to go out of control because everyone, then, oh, yeah, you know, once Aero gets involved in racing, um, yeah, off you go. And that <laughs> wasn't the only place they spent money on those cars oh, either. Oh, no, 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 no. They, yeah. they, those, that was where the budgets were just starting to really fire up in, in British touring cars. Um, World Rally Championship was booming at the time. Of course, Rally Australia was in Perth, which was such a, a big part of the history of, of rallying. Uh, Didier Oriel won the championship that year in the Castrol Toyota Celica. Yes. The way. Yeah. I thought I'd just slip that in there. Yeah. Um, Toyota was one year away from being done for yeah, that was, turbocharger yeah, illegalities. It was I'm good. Sure the 94 it car was, was good legal. 94, 95. Yep. Not such a good year for Toyota yeah. in World Rally. Um, 94-2, we saw Stephen Richards win the Formula Ford Championship with – I think he won nearly every race mm. pretty much uh, from that year, which was a standout. We um, also, and we also saw a, a young bloke by the name of Mark Webber make his Formula Ford debut that we year. Did. We did in the ex Craig Lowndes 93 Van Diemen, I think, off the top of my head. The championship winning car in 93 became Webber's yeah. um, in the aftermath. Um, having a, a bit of a scroll through some of the things, I mean, I think we've covered pretty much all the big points that all of our um, readers have raised. Oh. There, was, there was a cracker that I've yes. got to throw in that I hadn't even thought of it. And Stuart Brimstead, um, Brinsmead, sorry, I should say, um, he said, for some reason, Simtech Sims sits in his brain. Clearly, uh, the Roland Ratzenberger stuff is part of it because David Brabham was – um, the other driver of, of the other Simtech, and I, I kind of like the Simtech. I don't know it was it was you know it was there for what a year and a half. It was gone by partway through '95. But the other thing he mentions is Microprose Grand Prix Two. Yeah, so it did simulate the '94 season, it but didn't it didn't come turn out up. '94. I know it had but, such a long lead time. It didn't come out until like late '96 or something. But it, but it, it gave us because that was was that, the, was that the first time with real names in it. Or was it still not with the real that names? That, I think, had real names. Yeah. 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 As opposed to, like, Carlos Sanchez and so forth. Oh, from the original Microprose Grand, Grand Prix, Prix had some yeah. crackers from, I think, 91 or something. There. They looked and smelt like the cars, and but all the names were all different because, yeah. obviously, the, the licensing wasn't an issue. 1994 also saw us knee-deep in the Peter Jackson Dash. Jeez, that got the shits for some people, didn't it? Well, it's funny because halfway through that year, because, of course, the format of it was faster six cars from qualifying, draw, basically draw cards mm. to work out who starts where in the dash. And then where you finish the dash determines where you start the races. Uh, where you start the first well, race. start first the first race, race anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then halfway through, like, people weren't wrapped about that, in particular, Glenn Seaton, ironically. Who's- oh, he just had the duddest of- Exactly. He lost so many pole positions oh. through that. I think we've got, we've got the rundown. We did the rundown somewhere yeah. one day, didn't we? Um, so, halfway through the year, they decided to not- I think it was in time for Lakeside- to not make the dash count for- the main race starting positions. Still counted for points. Though. Still counted for points. And you would gain passing points if you were starting right. outside the top three yeah, moving that's forward. Right. That's right. Uh, and ironically, Cito, did he win the dash at Lakeside or win pole at Lakeside? It was, I think he won the dash at Lakeside and it didn't count for pole. <laughs> <laughs> he drew one. Right. I think it was just, the first time just, he drew one for the dash. <laughs> didn't and it actually get him what he needed. Yeah. Oh, geez, it caused some headaches, didn't it? The but old uh, dash. The other thing the dash did that year is it determined the championship. Yeah. It allowed- So, it got to a point where Mark Scaife was one point short of winning the championship ahead of, I think, Malala? Yeah. Or yeah. Wanneroo, one of those two. Uh, it was Wanneroo. Perth, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, for him to- For the championship to stay alive, Peter Brock had to draw six in the dash. To give him opportunity to earn passing points, it's a, to, Yeah, to yeah. either- To be able to- Maximise his score from the dash and maximise the passing points. Because he needed them all to be able to, all the points possible. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And once he qualified, or once he, I can't remember what he drew, but it certainly wasn't six, uh, Scapey was champ. Mm, mm. So, the turn of a card decided a championship. Yeah. Well, yeah. Won't happen these days. Not going to no. happen these days. Um, a thing that uh, Anthony Kernich um, has pointed out too, he mentioned the, the center stuff, the indie stuff with the Penske engine. And the Brickyard 400 bandwagon. And it's appropriate oh, yes. timing that they're bringing the Brickyard 400 back this year yeah. to mark the 30th anniversary of the debut stock car race at the track that had so famously been for American Open Wheeler Racing. So, I mean, that was big news at the time in 94 for the, the NASCAR race to run at a venue that was always all about one event a year. Oh, and from totally. there onwards, you know, now it's a 
it's used many times a year for various events. We've had MotoGP, sports car racing, road courses. Historics. Historics, the 500, road course IndyCar, road yeah. course NASCAR, uh, kind of like Bathurst has been. It was always the sort of once, maybe twice a year. Now it's five times a year because there's just such an iconic venue that, you know, for the region it's important to use it. Yeah. Um, fun fact about that first Brickyard 400. Ooh, do tell. So, it's apart from- being famous for being the first running of that event, mm-hmm. um, famous for local boy Jeff Gordon getting the win. It was also infamous for the Bodine brothers clashing, coming out of turn four and wrecking each other. Um, Jeff in, and Brett. Jeff and Brett. Um, in part driven by some personal beef that was going on between their families. And they didn't talk for the longest time after that. <laughs> but you know how they reconciled? Do tell. Oprah. No. They were on an episode of Oprah. Bull. No. 100% really? true. That is what got them back talking again. No, no, no. Oh. Oprah. About, wow. um, it was, I think it was some special episode about family members or siblings that had not had, had a rift and not wow. talked for a long time again. I did that's not what, know this. That's what began their reconciliation as brothers. I've heard it all now. Yeah. We're, we're two episodes into the year <laughs> and we've already bowled Oprah out. I mean- I never thought we'd ever see Oprah on the V8 Salute podcast, but there you go. Particularly linked to the Brickyard 400. We, yeah. we find ways to link things that previously have not been able to be linked. A couple of other things. few people, Jamie Hollier, former Thunderdome racer, uh, Brad Hall, who's a big NASCAR Oscar Thunderdome fan, both pointed out about the big crowds and the racing at the Thunderdome. 94 was the first year that they raced under lights. Correct. That the must final, go light the final round of the 93-94 yeah, season, they in, wheeled them out. And not only was the, the lighting system put in place, but Ron Goodman really did light oh. things up. Not yeah. with the lights, but with the West Coast- Was it the wine West cooler? West Coast cooler car, West Coast yeah. cooler car, which I have to giggle about. Not the accident, not the fire. He got out, thankfully. Yeah. It got all sorts of headlines and TV news. But every year, you know, when you go Christmas shopping and you're generally at a shopping centre somewhere <laughs> along the line, you know where I'm going, you know, there's those little calendar club pop-ups with all the calendars and diaries for sale. And I always have a flick because there's always, a, a, you know, muscle there's cars, something. road yeah. cars, race cars. For the last couple of years, there's been a Peter Brock calendar. You're kidding. Hang on. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, Ron Goodman raced <laughs> the 05 West Coast Wine Coolers. I think it was a Commodore body. It was a Commodore yeah. body NASCAR. The last of them, I think, by that point. I think it. I think it actually got upgraded to like VR spec by the end. It was a V nothing spec by the time I think that it was an Astra. race finished. Yeah. yeah. So there's a photo of that 05 Commodore NASCAR Ron Goodman's car in this Brock calendar. Has been for a couple of years, and no one's twigged that it's actually not Peter Brock. Uh, I hope there's still some of those available. Oh, I need I to go buy one of those. That's fantastic. I do giggle every time I see it. But Thunderdome was up and about. Aussie stock car racing was pretty solid at that point with you know, some road course racing, the short oval at Adelaide, Gold Coast Indy races. Um, well, the underlights at the yeah. Thunderdome. Change the game for Thunderdome oh, racing. Absolutely. That was the first motorsport event I went to at the end of that year when, when a fleet of Americans came out for the final time to take on the Aussies. Was that the Tracy Leslie? Tracy Leslie. Yeah. Who- was so fast and no one really saw which way he went right up until he crashed. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I think there was a famous story and Gerald McDonough, my longtime colleague at Motorsport News and then at, at Holder Motorsport, tells a story about I think Bob Jane was doing a press conference and was introducing the next lady racing driver to, that's going to come and race at the Thunderdome. Of course, we'd seen Terry Sawyer and some other great races over the years. And it might have not got through the memo that Tracy Leslie was not a lady racer, it was a bloke. So, um, that was <laughs> oh, a little story dear. that used to get told around the motorsport news offices quite a little bit and gets a few giggles. Um, Timothy Blunden pointed out to Andrew Medicki and Alan Taylor winning Target Tassie in 94. You remember that red 944 turbo yeah. Porsche that um, he drove? Of course, Targa at the time was a couple of years old and very much on the climb. And that was a big part of motorsport in, in the 90s. And I think- from about that point on, everyone got a bit serious. A few manufacturers were starting to get in the game, but Targa was really rising at this time. Oh, absolutely. Years ago. Like the previous year, I think there was a bit of Porsche factory involvement. That year in 94, the two Mazdas from the 12 hour mm. um, took part in it with Greg Hansford and Gary Walden driving. I think it was Gary's first non circuit race, and they were both very competitive throughout the entire event. 
it's one of those events that, I mean, the last few years have been mired in drama and mm. sad accidents and it's on, it's off, it's changing um, sanctioning bodies and all sorts of stuff. It's a really big shame. But at Target Tasmania in the period we're talking about, 1994, was was that the Dick Johnson drove a Maserati Barquetta? I believe it was. Why does this random <laughs> shit come into my head? It's probably because the imagery is of it hanging half off a, off that's a um, what I'm embankment. Thinking. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And the other thing in 94 that just occurred to me so, and we're going to um, kind of celebrate this a little bit um, with uh, you and I road tripping yes. to the Repco Bathurst 12 hour in a couple of weeks' time. And it's the 30th anniversary this year, 94, of Mazda's three-peat win with Greg Hansford and Neil Crompton. I was saying 30th anniversary of yeah. Crompton's Bathurst win. Yeah, exactly. The RX-7, um, they'd won in 92, won in 93. They didn't compete in the first one in 91. No. So, they were three from three uh, 30 years ago in 1994. We're going to take a Mazda to the mountain. Ah, it's year. exciting, isn't it? Mm. It's not the RX-7, unfortunately, but it's still no, a very good car. No, it's not the RX-7. It's a um, slightly bigger More version. Comfy? Yeah. More B- modern. A BT-50 with thanks to our mates at Packet and Mazda. It's a little bit bigger, a little bit roomier. So I don't think our cases would have fit in the RX-7. No, no. I, I don't think we would have been able to- to squeeze in. Um, you do pack light, though. I do have to tell the listeners. <laughs> yes. um, you, you do know how to pack a very small bag. 9412 hour was also the Peter Brock Volvo. Like yeah. That's where the Brock Volvo thing kind of was starting. Yep, in the Triple M-sponsored 850 Turbo. With Tony Scott. Yeah. And the other thing that just – it's funny what you remember. That was the year of the LPG-powered Falcon yes. in the 12 hour. <laughs> Wasn't that Melrose and Ian Luff? Yep. And yep. they would change at the pit stops. They'd just pull the tank out and change the tank. Yeah. And apparently, I was actually watching this or watching the um, race coverage on YouTube a little while ago. And apparently, there was a point during one of their pit stops that there was this loud bang and everyone took off. Um, but I it turned out, it was, yeah, fair enough. But it mm. turned out it was just an air hose explode. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was it the guest? So, yeah. So it wasn't the LPG. <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. Thankfully. That was also. Craig Lowndes' first Bathurst podium. In a Nissan Pulsar Triple S with the Morris Brothers. Yes. Yeah. If only people knew what was going to happen that October. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. I mean, he went from no one knew, you know, you asked anyone on the street who's Craig Lowndes, no one. Yeah. What, eight months later, seven months later, whatever it was, yeah, that number's gone up from zero to a decent amount. It would only go up and climb in the, the years that followed. So- I mean, 1994, when you look back on it, and we've just touched the surface here, we could go all day, but there's so many things that are strong in our memory bank that are still talked about, that are still looked at, that are still uh, pondered. I mean, the, some of the, the technology, some of the cars that really stick in people's brains, some of the on-track incidents and um, the controversies, s- let's yeah, say. controversies off the track yeah. as well. Um the stars that were being born, the stars that were on the decline, um, those that – I mean, some of the periods of domination that really kind of kicked in at this point, Mick Doohan in motorcycle racing, this is where his era really did take off and he owned the next, what, four or five years. Mm. Um, so many elements here where the youth brigade was starting to get a foothold slowly but surely into local V8 racing, so many things that – it's been cool to look back on some of this stuff because yeah. the, the great part of it's not before our time, although we weren't actively working <laughs> we in the in sport. It, but we were watching it. But we were it. watching it yeah. and we were drinking it all in and, and taking it all in. So I hope you've enjoyed a bit of a look back. And we're going to do this with the other decades over the course of this year. So 74, 84, 04, 14, bit to cover. Yeah, we might not go back to 1904 and the Gordon Bennett Cup and so forth. But yeah, it might be a short episode. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure that there's much content no. to fill for. No. And 1914, nothing going on in motor racing. World, oh, there was busy. Indy. Oh, there's Indy, but the yeah. world was just starting to have a bit of drama there yes, uh, with, with everybody else and a bit of motor racing shut down there for a while. Hey, so Castro um, uh, with us again this year with the V8 Sleuth podcast, which is absolutely fantastic. You're back with Stefan with the Motorsport News Podcast, which is a ripper. There's plenty of news bubbling and emerging and happening in supercars and world motorsport. I'm not sure that you can do livery reveals on the MN pod. You you could do livery descriptions to to maybe- Bold, striking. Yeah, there you go. All all the big words. I like it. Um, Got a few good guests coming up in upcoming weeks and months on the pod. I've had a sit down with Phil Keed, the longtime supercars engineer, worked with- 
Subaru World rallying and rally up and V8s. He's with Brad Jones Racing again this year uh, with Bryce Forward. Really cool, insightful chat with Phil, who's been there, seen it, got the T-shirt uh, in World Motorsport, which is which is really cool. Castrol Supercars Weekly is back this year with our little updates over the course of the week with the latest goings-on in the Repco Supercars Championship. Bit of Dunlop Series in there as well. Uh, getting, by the way, the... Repco Supercast Championship Season Guide ready, which sure will be are. out and about very soon. Bathurst 12-hour official program is going to be in our hands very soon. You can pre-order that now from the V8 Sleuth Superstore. Make sure you don't miss out. It will be available uh, at the track. And speaking of the Repco Bathurst 12-hour, what are we doing next week on the pod, Will? Well, I think we're. I think you're going to be talking to someone who's very well versed in Bathurst Twelve Hours. I think he has changed his name by deed poll to the Bathurst Twelve Hour. Repco Bathurst Twelve Hour Crail. That's him. Yeah, it starts with an R. That's the man, Richard Crail, who is the voice of the Twelve Hour. He's going to join us on the pod next week to preview all the action in the Repco Bathurst Twelve Hour. We're doing it next week because, quite frankly, to do it during Event Week, he does not have a spare moment. To stop. He's a very busy yeah. man with TV commentary, media work. He's got it all going on. So, Richard Crail from the Race Talk is going to join us on the V8 Sleuth Pod, powered by Castrol next week. Uh, great to have you back, Will. Good Thank to sit you. down and go back through the memory bank. What year should we do for our next decades episode down the track? Ooh. Should we go back further or should we get a bit closer to where we are now? Should we ask what the listeners think? Uh, let's do that. Send us a, an email. Jump on our website, v8sleuth.com.au. Go to our contact page. There's a little page you can fill out there with an email in the description. Send us through. Which decade do you want to hear the next show? It'll be a bit later in the year. Is it 84? Is it 04? Is it 14? Is it 24? bit early to probably do that one at the moment. <laughs> but we'll have a crack at predicting. You never know. Hey, Welcome back. Good to be back with you. Thanks so much. Hope you've had a great off-season. Hope you missed us. Hope you've enjoyed having us back uh, on your podcast listening platform. Uh, We'll be back next week with another episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast, powered by Castrol. And don't forget to listen to the MN Pod, to the BJR Rundown, and Castrol Supercars Weekly as well. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online. Thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.